You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. On your way back, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 11, Luke 11 verses 1 through 4. If you're using one of our hardback black Bibles at the table, you're on page 869, Luke 11, 1 through 4. We are in our third week of our series on prayer, and when we started a couple weeks ago, I pointed out that prayer is, in many ways, one of the most natural things that we do as humans, and yet at the same time, it is one of the most confusing and difficult things that we do as humans. In Luke 11, after Jesus was praying on his own, one of his disciples approaches him and asks, Lord, teach us to pray. And throughout our series, we are doing the same thing. We're asking a very similar question, which is why we've titled our series, Teach Us to Pray. Our series is based on the first 13 verses of chapter 11, but today I'm only going to read verses 1 through 4. And from those four verses, I believe that the Lord has a paradigm shift in mind for us. And if we're willing to make it, it will have a significant impact on the way that we pray. Some of us in the room have been trained to think about prayer primarily as asking for things. And not even necessarily in a selfish way. It doesn't have to be selfish, self-oriented asking, but we ask even on behalf of others for things. Neighbors, friends, family, we pray for peace in the world, or we pray for missionaries and for the hungry. And as I said, this is not a bad thing. In fact, last week, Tom reminded us that Jesus tells us to ask, seek, and knock. God wants us to ask for things. But when asking for things becomes our primary aim of prayer, the primary lens through which we pray, we miss out on God's design for prayer. And we will eventually find ourselves frustrated with our prayers. And some of you maybe have felt that as you ask for things and you don't see the answers and you're wondering what's going on. And as we get frustrated, eventually we will find ourselves giving up. And the paradigm shift that we need is to see that in prayer, it is not primarily about bringing God into alignment with our vision for the world by asking for things. Prayer is more about bringing us into alignment with God's vision for the world and what he wants to happen. And so we'll see here in Luke chapter 11 how Jesus wants us to pray. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, I will read and you can follow along in your own text or the screen or the, yeah, the words appear on the screen beside me as well. So Luke 11 verses 1 through 4 says this, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. You hear the kids? That's a good reminder. Kids ministry needs help if you ever want to volunteer. You guys can be seated. Let me pray for us this week. 
turn to God's Word. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you for the gift of our children as well. Um, but here, as we open the Scriptures, Lord, um, we're asking for your help. Uh, we, need, we need your help. So, by your Spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Jonathan Lehman recently published a book, <clears throat> excuse me, called Authority, which, let's be honest, is kind of a risky title today for a book, Authority, which feels maybe a bit like a cursed word to some people. The subtitle of the book, however, is very clarifying, a bit long, but clarifying. It says, how godly rule protects the vulnerable, strengthens community, and promotes human flourishing. And he wants his readers to see that within every position of power lies the potential for life-giving leadership or destructive corruption. And he argues that authority itself is not the problem. Abusive and corrupt authority is the problem. Whereas benevolent, kind, and godly leadership leads to human flourishing. I think we're going to keep hearing them today. So today's sermon is not so much about human authority, okay? So the book is helpful in this way, but it's not primarily about human authority and our submission to it. Uh, It is primarily about God's good and gracious authority and how our prayers are a way of submitting to God's design and desire for the world. And in his book, Lehman actually gives this illustration for how this works. He argues that even good authority lives in submission and under other authorities. Jesus even, for example, submitted to God the Father during his earthly ministry. And he illustrates this with the symphony orchestra and how it functions. He has a friend who was in the orchestra, and she explained to him that in a standard symphony, all the first chairs of their sections follow the first chair of the violins called the concert master, and the concert master in turn follows the lead of the conductor. And if someone in a lower ranking chair has a question, they don't go straight to the concert master, they ask the person who ranks above them. And if they don't know the answer to the question, then they ask the person who's in the chair above them until it gets to the first chair of their section, who, if they don't know the answer, will eventually go to the concert master. And his friend told him this story, and she was the first violist, and a man in a chair behind her continued to play his notes early, over and over in practice. And when she turned around and confronted him about it, he said to her, you're coming in late. And she said, I'm coming in with the concertmaster. And he said, the concertmaster is coming in late. And she said, that might be true, but we need to come in together. We don't correct the concertmaster from back here. Our job is to follow his lead. Sometimes when we pray, we're a bit like that guy. We're trying to get the concertmaster of the world to adjust to our desire and plan. But unlike human concertmasters, who may be wrong at times, we follow a perfect concertmaster who always plays the right note and always at the right time. And prayer is one of the ways that we learn to follow the lead of the concertmaster of the world, submitting ourselves to God's design and desire. And so the primary message of the sermon for us today 
is that submitting to God in prayer means agreeing with God in prayer. It means we agree with God's vision and values for the world, and then we align ourselves and our lives with Him. And this is not just an intellectual exercise. We do not just agree in word, but then reject this vision in our actions. It means that all of our lives come under the authority of God into greater and greater alignment with Him. Now, we're going to explore this basic thesis through three questions this morning. They will form the outline for our sermon, and they are, the first, what does it mean to submit to God through prayer? Second, why do we struggle to submit to God through prayer? And third, how can we learn to submit to God through prayer? So first, what does it mean to submit to God through prayer? Jesus begins his prayer with the word, Father, And two weeks ago, I told you that prayer is about communicating with a personal God who has invited us into relationship with him to call him Father. In this way, prayer is a relational exercise. God is also, though, transcendent, and he is holy. Prayer embraces both of these realities at the same time. And if we only focus on the personal or only on the transcendent otherness of God, our concept of prayer will be severely diminished. And so not only do we pray to a personal God, which we talked about two weeks ago, but we also pray to a God who wants our vision of reality to come into alignment with his, just like the fourth chair violist comes into alignment with the concert master. And there are three statements in this prayer that Jesus gives that will help us to see what it means to submit to God in prayer. The first is, hallowed be your name. When we pray, hallowed be your name, it is the same thing as asking God to make his name holy, which means God is set apart and distinct, worthy of praise and adoration. But this prayer cannot make that come about or make that into a true reality because God is already holy. It is already true. He cannot become more holy because we pray, and he will not be less holy if we don't pray. And so why is Jesus calling us to ask this prayer? Why are we praying this? It is an invitation to be part of something that God is already committed to doing. The question is not, will God do it, but will I receive him as holy in my life? We are bringing our vision of the world into alignment with the way that God has designed the world to work. This prayer is a bit like looking at a beautiful sunset and then saying to the person next to you, isn't that sunset beautiful? Look at the deep shades of colors and look at how the colors spread across the entire sky. Not one of those statements would make any qualitative difference to the beauty of that sunset. But my words do enhance my own awareness of its beauty. It draws the attention of the person next to me to the beauty of the sunset. And that's in many ways how this prayer works. We're saying, God, I know that you are holy. Help me to see your holiness. Hallow your name. Make it clear to the world around me and to my heart as well. Bring my heart and my mind and my actions into alignment with your reality. The second prayer here is, your kingdom come. And this prayer works in a similar way to the last one. 
God will bring his kingdom to bear on the earth. Our prayers do not make this happen. He has already promised it's going to happen. He is committed to doing this work. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is whether we are going to receive God's kingdom. Will we live our lives as kingdom people, representing kingdom values, living in submission to the king? This is why I'm framing this sermon under this idea of submission. Will I agree with God about his design and desire for the world? And when we pray this prayer, we are declaring that God's kingdom is better than the kingdoms of the earth and that we want to live in a way that lines up with his kingdom. The third prayer that I'll mention, I want to highlight is in verse four, it is forgive us our sins. This is an ongoing prayer for us. Now we know that Jesus died once for all sin. If you are in Christ, you are fully and completely forgiven. But yet we still will rebel against God at times. And when that happens, the Bible tells us to confess our sins, to ask for forgiveness, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we ask forgiveness in this way, we are confessing that God is right about our sin. We are agreeing with him that what we did was a rejection of him, that it was wrong. And in that process, we are bringing ourselves into alignment with God. Confession is an act of submission to God's design and desire for the world. As this series was beginning, we asked you to submit some questions about prayer. And several of the questions that were sent in were about this similar idea around how do we hear from God in prayer? If prayer is a conversation with a personal God, then how does God participate in that conversation? Which is relevant for us as we talk about prayer as submission, because if we're going to submit, we need to know what God has to say. If you had a friend who you reached out to all the time but never heard back from, eventually you'd probably stop being their friend. And for some of you in the room, you feel this way about God in your prayers. You feel as if you're sending out prayers to God, and you feel like he's never responding, never answering. When people ask this question, I think they're primarily thinking about an audible response from the Lord, or maybe some clear impression from God's Spirit. And even though we may hear from God in these ways at times, the Bible gives us a different vision for God's side of this ongoing conversation in prayer. And we often think about this conversation, this prayer, with us as the initiators, and we're waiting for God to respond. I think that's behind the question being asked. We initiate, now we're wondering, when's God going to respond? But the picture that the Bible gives is that prayer is about us joining a conversation that God has already started, a conversation he's been having since before creation. God is the initiator of the conversation, and we are the ones who are responding to him in prayer. God the Father, Son, and Spirit have been in relationship, communicating love and affection for one another before humans were ever created or invited into this relationship. God has used his speech to create and to shape the world. His speaking and his acting are as one. And so God spoke creation into being in Genesis chapter 1. And then God spoke to and through prophets. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke through the coming of Jesus. 
If we want to know God's side of the conversation, it begins with all that God has said and affirmed through Jesus. Jesus is the most clear way that God has spoken and revealed himself to us. And beyond the coming of Jesus, the other way that God has primarily spoken to us is through the Bible, through his written word that he has given us. And so in answer to the question, how does prayer not become a one-sided conversation? What's God's part in the conversation? First, we need to see that we do not start the conversation. Our prayers are a response to what God has already said. And second, if we want to hear from God, that will happen most clearly through Jesus and secondarily through the Scriptures. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, once wrote, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. And you may have heard pastors who cheekily say, if you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. This is why here at River City Church, we will encourage you to know and read your Bible, not because it is an obligation to fulfill, but because it is God's primary way of speaking to us. And we want to hear from him. The Bible is not primarily a textbook or a rule book or a theological treatise. It is God's way of telling us about himself, communicating his desire and design for the world and how we can join in his plan of redemption. Now, that doesn't mean we won't hear from God in other ways at times. Last week, Tom shared about a Muslim man who heard an audible voice tell him to go to Tom in the middle of the night so he could hear about the hope that is found in Jesus. When I was an undergraduate student, I heard from the Lord in my architecture class a call to vocational ministry. We do hear from God in these ways, but those are not always easily discerned. And many people have made this mistake of interpreting our inward impulses as equal to the Word of God. Jesus here is inviting us to pray in such a way that aligns our hearts to God's design, responding to a conversation that He has initiated. initiated. Submitting ourselves to Him requires us then to know God's Word, because that is the primary way He is communicating with us. That is how we submit to God in prayer responding to his initiative by praying these three prayers, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, forgive us our sins. But that's not always easy. And so we ask a second question, why do we struggle to submit to God through prayer? If we're honest with ourselves, we struggle to pray these prayers as an act of submission because we are not confident that God's design is always better than our desires. If we're honest, we're not always confident that his plans are better than our plans. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we are saying that we want God's kingdom more than our kingdom. But that's hard sometimes. If we're truly honest with ourselves, that is not always the case. We don't always want to make the sacrifices that prayer will require of us. We don't always want to give up our desire. And so we often pray it in such a way that we're trying to get God's kingdom to submit to our desires. But this prayer forces us to submit to his design. God's not unsympathetic to the challenge, though, that it is to pray this prayer. 
Tyler Statton, a pastor in Oregon, wrote this about the challenge that it is to trust God in prayer. And he's talking about the inner dialogue we sometimes have with ourselves. He said, I can trust him as my answer to the big theological questions, but I'm not sure if I can trust him with my dreams, my hopes, my plans. I can trust him ultimately, but I doubt that I can trust him immediately. And he goes on then to comment on this internal dialogue by saying, when we trust God with our worldview, but not our current experience in the world, we are falling victim to the lure of control. So I want us just to be honest. Praying that God's kingdom will come is not always an easy prayer because we have to give up control and we have to trust that God's will is better than our plans. Jesus doesn't tell us to pray this prayer without doing it himself. In Luke 22, Jesus is praying on the eve of his crucifixion, and it says there that he is in deep agony, so much so that he is sweating blood. And in his prayer, he asks God that the cup would pass from him, which is another way of asking God to find another way to redeem the world. And he ends his prayer in verse 42 by saying, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus here prays a very similar prayer to the one he's telling his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Jesus knows how hard it is to pray this prayer, to trust God with our immediate future as well as our ultimate future. And here's just a simple application for you today. I would encourage you to trust that not only does God want you to pray this prayer, but he also wants to help you embrace this prayer. And so when you pray, your kingdom come, you can also pray, God, help me to want your kingdom to come. Don't just pray, let your will be done. You can also pray, God, help me to want what you want. I think that's really what Jesus meant by this prayer. Both of those ideas are embedded in it, but it helps us to be extra clear in our words, to get our minds around this. Let me add another layer to the struggle it is to trust God and to submit to him in prayer. These three statements together, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, forgive us our sins, they reflect an all-of-life mentality. This is comprehensive submission. And we might in our lives at times embrace one of them fully or even two of them, but we will struggle to embrace all three. Individuals and entire faith traditions have emphasized some of these petitions over others. For example, some have heavily emphasized the need for personal piety and for holiness, and so they're ready to pray, forgive us our sins. But in their concern for personal holiness, they will neglect the needs for their neighbors and for their city. In this way, they do not fully embrace what it means to pray, your kingdom come. When Jesus taught about the kingdom, it was not just limited to personal holiness. Jesus had in mind comprehensive renewal for all of society. In Luke 4, he says it was good news to the poor, liberty to the captives. However, an unfortunate caricature of Christians in America today is this stodgy religious type who cares a great deal about our own righteousness, but are ignorant of the impoverished and neglected in our own city. And however uncharitable that caricature is, it was not born out of a void. It came from somewhere. And it came from traditions who favored one prayer over the other. 
Now, we cannot honestly pray, your kingdom come, and not care about the needs in our neighborhoods, in our city, but that has sadly been the case for too many people who are willing, on the other hand, to pray, forgive us of our sins. Now, there are some who will emphasize the other side of this. On the other hand, there are those who will emphasize the need for God's kingdom to come, to confront the unjust systems of the world, but they are unwilling to confront the sin that lurks in their own hearts. I heard a story about a young woman who was deeply concerned about things like systemic justice or systemic racism, and she would earnestly pray, your kingdom come. She would complain about her church's leadership, not caring enough about diversity and justice issues. But when a person of color came to her own small group, she did not welcome them as a guest. She did not initiate in relationship. In fact, she complained about how new people to the group were interrupting the relationships that she had established with others. And she is someone who would pray for God's kingdom to come and address systemic problems in the world, but she had failed to see her own responsibility for these things. She also needed to pray, God, forgive me of my sin and my neglect of others in my life. We struggle to pray these prayers because it's hard to trust God with our lives and even harder when these prayers call for comprehensive submission, all of life. But that is Jesus' vision for us when he calls us to pray this prayer. And so we ask the third question, how can we learn to submit to God through prayer? We know that this can be hard. We've acknowledged that. And I also believe God is sympathetic to these challenges because in the person of Jesus, he experienced the challenge himself. I mentioned Luke chapter 22, and Jesus is there spending time in prayer. And in this particular time of prayer, it's a great example for us because it's a prayer in which Jesus was willing to submit to the Father even though it was going to be hard. It's a prayer that required remarkable trust in God and a willingness to pray, your will be done. Jesus was about to die in the most painful way. It was going to require physical torture. It was going to require him to die as a guilty sinner when in reality he was fully innocent. And his trial would be one of the most egregious miscarriages of justice in the history of the world. And so Jesus prayed in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. God is not calling you to trust him in the pains and the trials of life without experiencing it himself first. Jesus knows how hard it can be to pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He knows how hard it can be to give up his immediate desire, submit to God's design, and trust in his plan. The answer that Jesus got to the first half of this prayer in the garden was no. No, this cup will not pass from you. This was the plan of God to redeem the world. It was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was planned before the foundations of the world. Jesus knows what it means to hear no from the Father. And when we pray, he knows how painful it is to hear no. But he also shows us here that we can trust the Father even when our prayer is not answered how we want or when we want. 
Jesus heard no so that we could hear yes to our greatest needs. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That Him there is Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. We can pray, hallowed be your name, because the Holy One of God came in humility and died as someone who was impure. The prayer Jesus instructs His disciples to pray would be impossible if not for Jesus receiving the cup that did not pass from him. He received a no in the garden so that all the promises of God would find their yes in him. And through him, we can utter our amen. We can pray, Father, because the son died as an outcast so we could receive adoption. We can pray, your kingdom come, because the true king of that kingdom died to redeem his kingdom from rebellion. We can pray, give us our daily bread, because the bread of life went without bread in the wilderness and in his deepest hunger resisted the temptations of the evil one. We can pray, forgive us our sins, because the one who knew no sin became sin in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of Jesus, we can agree with God about our sin. And we can agree with God about our new identity as holy in Christ. We do not pray as condemned sinners any longer. In Christ, we pray as redeemed saints. The basis of our prayer is not our holiness, but Christ's holiness. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Because on our behalf, he heard no in the garden. Jesus did not respond to God's answer with begrudging obedience. He trusted in the good plan of the Father, and with joy he endured the cross. Jesus knows the pain of prayers that go unanswered. He knows what it means to have to trust in God in submission, even when the results are not what he wants immediately. I began with this analogy of an orchestra as a pattern for good authority and submission to work together. Think about what an orchestra would sound like if they were unwilling to operate in this way. If they each tried to play it in their own way, the way that they thought best, it would be a discordant and wretched sound. And that is how the world operates when we are out of sync with God's design and desire. And when God looked into the world that he had made and the rebellion of sinful humanity, he realized he needed to intervene. What we needed was not simply better instruction or to be told to play our instruments better. What we needed was a perfect concert master whose pitch and rhythm and tone we could follow. So God sent his son. Apart from Jesus, we are unable to truly submit to God through prayer in this way. But Jesus came and submitted to God first throughout his life, in his garden prayer, and ultimately at the cross. Jesus submitted And through his life, death, and resurrection, we can also learn to submit to the Father through prayer. And so when you pray, pray with a spirit of submission, asking God to help you bring your life into alignment with his desires. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. 
We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. 